Principal, episode 59 with Sue Sakowitz. Welcome to Transformative Principal, where we learn every single week from an educator who's doing amazing things at his or her school. This week, I'm continuing my interviews from the uh, Rigor Relevance Conference down in Nashville. I'm talking to Sue Sakowitz, the former principal of Brockton High School. You're going to love this. I put a bunch of links in the show notes about the amazing things that they're doing there, and I hope you enjoy listening to her wisdom about a school-wide literacy program. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Also, please, if you're interested, join my Transformative Principal Slack team. Just send me an email, jethro at paperlessprincipal.com, and I'll get you right into that group. There's a link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much. Sue, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Will you start out by telling us who you are, what you do, what you've been doing, and how you got to where you're at today? Sure. Uh, my name is Sue Zakowitz, and I am now a senior fellow with the International Center for Leadership and Education, which means that I'm kind of a thought leader, and I work with other teachers uh, in different places in the country. Um, but that really wasn't who I am in real life. It's sort of just been since I retired. I actually... Um, I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts. I grew up there. I went to school there. I became um, the principal of Brockton High School uh, and um, was um, both a teacher there. I was a history teacher there for my whole career and then became an administrator. I was a department head, an assistant principal, and then eventually the principal of the school. And you also went to school there, right? And I did. I graduated from Brockton High. So my life was quite narrow, but... Um, but, I mean, I was a Brockton boxer through and through and through. Um, and um, so the reason I'm actually now working with the International Center is, um, you know, after 40 years in the business, I did, I did retire. But um, uh, we as a school did a major turnaround and had some tremendous success. And we had been a national model school selected by the International Center for, it's been 12 years now. And so um, it was, we were always featured because of the work we did in literacy um, by the International Center. And so now what I'm doing is both, is presentations and work with schools um, around really two areas, literacy in, in implementing a literacy initiative in a school and also leadership. Because, um, you know, I think the way I would put it is this, when I became principal, um, I felt like I was prepared until things happened. And then I didn't feel prepared at all. So I put together, with um, the support of the International Center, a program that I call Principles for Principles, which was really sort of a walk in my shoes, you know, walk a mile in my shoes approach. What, you know, what are those things that I didn't feel prepared for? And sort of advice from lessons learned the hard way. So that's, what I, that's actually what I'm doing now. So Principles for Principles is very cool and very exciting. But what I really want to talk about today is the literacy component. How do you get teachers and students to buy into that? And first of all, talk about why you chose to focus on literacy. Okay. Good questions, too. Um, what happened was Massachusetts um, is a real sort of ahead of the curve state on education. And um, the, Massachusetts had implemented a, um, an ed reform law way back before No Child Left Behind in 1993, as a matter of fact. Part of that ed reform law was um, a high-stakes exam, 
I mean, the test is not just high stakes. There's testing almost every year. But at the high school level, it, it was a high stakes exam. And um, Brockton, is a, Brockton High is a huge 4,200 student comprehensive urban high school. We have um, over 80% minority, 80% poverty, um, very transient school. About 40% of our kids speak a language other than English in the home. Uh, a lot of newcomers. And so, uh, as you would expect, we did not perform well on that high stakes test. And, um, and in fact, when it first hit us, I think we were living in denial, actually. We, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Oh, yeah, Massachusetts won't deny a diploma. But they do, and they did. And, and uh, you had to pass both. At that time, you had to pass English and math. Now they've added science. Uh, and so um, we had, a in English, a 44% failure rate, and in math, a 75% failure rate. Now, remember, you had to pass both. So three the bottom line was three-quarters of our students would not be earning a diploma. So that actually happened. That happened. Oh, well, the, uh, it, they take the test in the 10th grade. So by the time graduation comes, they have a chance to retake it in their junior year and then in their senior year. I mean, not multiple. They have it a couple of times. It's very high security. You know, you can only do it when the state says and all of that. And um, so, uh, but yes, I mean, not 75% failed, but, a you know, in our first years, yes, a huge percent of our kids didn't earn a diploma. So what's really important here is that in 10th grade, you would know whether or not you were actually going to graduate with a diploma. That's correct. That's correct. 10th grade seems like a pivotal time. That's when you would know whether or not you were going to get a diploma. And why would you continue going to school if you weren't even going to get a chance to get a diploma? Good way to put it. Pivotal is the right word to use. And in fact, that's what kids were saying. Oh, what does it matter? I'm never going to pass. And... um but in the first years, though, when the kids were sophomores and took it for the first time, there was still, and not just in Brockton, across the state, a disbelief that it would actually come to pass, that they would not be able to graduate. Because we had never done that before, and there was this view in liberal Massachusetts, they will never deny a diploma. So I would say in the first couple of years, there, was, there wasn't real panic yet, because... Um, Nobody really believed it would happen, including, by the way, many on the faculty. We actually had uh, the guidance department head um, stand. Who, we had a very, um, it, the, the atmosphere in the school was very negative at that time. At that time, Not anymore, but at that time. And there was a real belief that kids couldn't because, after all, they are. It doesn't matter. Fill in the blank. There's, you know. And um, so the kids um, themselves were not getting the message from teachers that they could. The guidance department had actually stood in front of our faculty and said, um, Massachusetts will never deny a diploma to kids. So, um, you know, I mean, that didn't help to make people feel like this is urgent and this is serious. Um, he later said when they did, well, now that this has kicked in, th this man was very negative. He wasn't a good, he was really a, a, I was glad to see him retire. Let's put it that way. He actually said to all of us in a faculty meeting, well, Brockton High is going to have to change its graduation from the stadium to the little theater because none of our kids are going to be able to pass this. So that's what we were facing. We were facing such a negative belief system. And then the real pivotal moment came when we ended in 1999 when we ended up on the front page of the Boston Globe. And the headline of the story was Failing Schools. 
and it was the message that our schools are failing our kids and um and we were uh, among the worst in the commonwealth in terms of um kids not graduating so um we had a number of changes our superintendent had retired we had i mean a lot of you know, a lot of people jumped ship you know and um but for many of us particularly there were a number of people like me that had grown up in the city and still were there you sort of took it a different way like you took it as a and I'll never forget this that headline ever and um we took it as um is this the best we can be and the answer is no you know whether we have a 100% pass or not this is not the best we can be we can do better for our kids and that became our our central question you know before every meeting faculty meeting we would put that those scores up and not that everything should be centered around a test but right then it needed to be for us you know you have to be political and strategic that was urgent that is the right word and we needed to do something about that test first so um we the superintendent we had a new superintendent and he called a few of us in and he said um that he so I was a history teacher I wasn't the principal um but I was involved in the state assessment movement because I believed in it and um I believe kids should be held to a set of standards I really do I think they should demonstrate some competence before you just hand them a diploma so um he called a bunch of us in and he said look um you know I need you to do something here I'm not sure what but you you know we need to start taking some steps so that became he asked two of us to take the lead myself and a guy named Paulino who was a very close buddy in fact Paul and I co-taught he was an English teacher I was a history teacher and um he asked us to pull you know try to pull a group together and that became the genesis of our restructuring committee and what we did was beg people to you know help us and um and we started meeting over the summer that year and the first thing we did was to take and look at the test because you know what it's high security in Massachusetts so um we don't correct the, our own tests in Massachusetts they get sent to some i don't know universe <laughs> where little minions correct them or something you know because god forbid a teacher correct their own kids test so anyway uh, we took the tests and looked at them and we said how can we help the kids here is this the best we can be how can we help the kids so when you ask me about why literacy i'll tell you a funny story which wasn't funny haha at the time but when we looked at the test we made a wrong decision right away because we noticed on the, the we looked at the first 3 years of released items right and we noticed that on all 3 years of those released items there were questions about shakespeare you know there were shakespearean sonnets there were shakespearean readings excerpts and the kids had to answer some multiple choice questions and write about them. Our kids weren't even answering them. They had no clue, none. And then uh, keep in mind that 40% of our kids don't speak English as their first language and let's talk about Shakespeare under those you know, so it was really a challenge. So we stupidly went down this road of well if we teach them all Shakespeare then perhaps they'll do better. So we launched this Shakespearean experience across the school. It was ludicrous. the kids didn't even know what was going on it was artificial i think that's the word i'd use like it didn't connect to the real learning in the school every day and so we had them to being and not to being and all this stuff and then of course the end of the story is that year on the test there was not one question about shakespeare not a one not a mention of his name nothing so we had to step back and reassess and what we reassessed was it can't ever be about a test 
You can't outguess a test. So we went back to those tests and we asked a different question. What are the skills kids need to be successful on this test? The second question we asked is, and what are the skills they need to be successful in their classes? And what are the skills they need to be successful in their lives beyond school? And we started making lists. And we started to see some common areas. Well, they're going to need in life to read difficult things. Uses manuals, the newspaper, it doesn't matter, whatever. They're going to need to read a lot. They're going to need to be able to express themselves in writing. They're going to be able to need to speak to other people well. They're going to need to be able to solve problems and things. So that led us, instead of outguessing a test, to developing a literacy initiative across the school. And, and this is before PowerPoints and technology and all this. So we were using chart paper. And we started writing these skills down. And, and we were just posting them. You know, we were in a conference room. And th so there's post-its everywhere. And what we started to notice, and I can remember this meeting like it was yesterday, and this is how long ago it was like, this was like 2000, and so I, that's how long ago it was. We started to notice and group things in like areas, and so we had a whole bunch that were about reading. We had a whole bunch that were about writing. We had a whole bunch that were about presenting and speaking. We had a whole bunch that were about solving problems and stuff. And so from that, we developed these lists of skills in these four areas, which is the heart and soul of our literacy initiative. Reading, writing, speaking, and reasoning. Now, that was only the beginning because that was just us, our little restructuring committee, in a room. So let me ask a question. You looked at the test and you said, what do kids need to be successful on this test, right? Then you added, what do kids need to be successful in their classes? and in their life. And I'm guessing that being successful at speaking probably was not very high on the list of being successful on the test, but was important for being successful in their classes and in their life, right? Each one of those, yep. And then we grouped them. Exactly right. And um, and there's no speaking component. And yet that's a, that is like one of the things we're proudest of because we've done a lot of work on helping kids present themselves. So now we, the restructuring committee, this group of people that were taking this on, put these skills in draft form. I wish I had been savvy enough to, to realize this was the beginning of the change and save the original because what we initially drafted in our little conference room was not what we eventually, some was the same, but others evolved because what we started doing was we brought this draft to the, to the faculty and in faculty discussion groups, we put at the top of the page, English failure rate, 44%. Math failure rate, 75%. Is this the best we can be? And then underneath we said, in trying to help our students be successful, we, we are looking at some skills they need. We've drafted these. What do you think? And we had three, only three questions. We're like, always, keep it simple, stupid. You know, that's us. We're just really, we said, what do you like? What did we say well? What is, what in, what's missing? What is missing from your class that you say, oh no, you know what, they really need to do this. And what do we need to say differently so that, and here's, you're going to laugh, but we said, so that it passes the 7-11 test. Now, here's what we meant by that. 
in our city, it's like a 7-Eleven convenience store is on every corner. And we wanted to have something so that anybody, our parents, any people in the city could look at this list of skills and say, oh, I get it. So we wanted to say clearly not talk in teacher talk, you know, the, the jargon that you're like, what? You know, so we asked him those three questions and we went back and forth probably six times that year. It took us a year to get those literacy charts where they are now. So that was step one. So by the end of that year, uh, we, 2000, we had this, these literacy charts. We then put them up in every room, huge. They're in every classroom. But so big deal. You have these fancy looking charts in every room. And by the way, on our charts, as you know, because you saw them, the skill is the centerpiece. The content area is the context of, you know, because if you're going to write, you better be writing about something. If you're going to be reading, you better be reading about something, as opposed to our Shakespearean initiative was just artificial. This was very authentic. It was always rooted in the, what the teacher was teaching. So now we have this across the board, and we have these up, but the key to what we did is, now how do you bring it to life in the classroom? So the committee went back to the drawing board and say, okay, we have these, we've all agreed on these. And so by now, there still wasn't a lot of resistance, because we weren't asking everybody to do anything yet. So it's easy to say, oh, yeah, okay, okay. You haven't asked me to change my practice yet. Right. So that's where round two came, and that's where the resistance came too, by the way, because what we did is we said, we looked at these four areas. Okay, where do we start? We can't take them all on right away. It would be too much. So we, had, we decided as a committee to begin with writing. And that was a conscious decision, a big discussion about it. Some people wanted us to begin with reading. I can understand why. I was in the writing camp. And the reason writing won, it was pretty overwhelming on the committee too. We had real consensus by the end was we wanted to pick something that was easily measurable by all teachers in all content areas. And we felt reading is going to be a tough one to evaluate whether kids are getting it or not unless they write something. So we decided to kind of link the two by developing a writing process that included active reading followed by writing a response to that reading. And we trained all of the faculty in this writing format. And that's when the resistance began. So you talked yesterday and you said that writing was important because writing is thinking, thinking. right? Writing is thinking, yes. Talk a little uh, bit I'm more glad about you asked that. me that. Um, that's why writing won, sort of, you know, not really won, but, you know, took the, the prominence because when a student can articulate their thoughts in writing, they're demonstrating what they've learned and what they haven't learned or what they're confused about. So from the perspective of instruction, which is what you want it to be, not some artificial, can they quote Shakespeare, but I just taught them something. Do they know it? And if they don't know it, I need to reteach it. So it became a powerful tool in our instructional practice in terms of assessing what kids know and what they don't know and need to know. And so that's why the writing became the centerpiece. So we trained everybody, and then what? Now, we did the training. We, the restructuring committee. So this was colleague to colleague. We wrote, we, we said, okay, how are we going to do this? We, 
we this was before PowerPoint, so we used overhead transparencies, to, right? And we took everybody through, like I did yesterday in the session, a writing process, and we modeled the process that they were going to use with their students. We modeled for them. So you did a faculty meeting, basically, and you had all the restructuring committee teachers teach yep. the other teachers. So you had correct. You had all the restructuring committee teach all the teachers how to do it, and then you also taught the teachers how to teach their students how to do it. Is that right? Yes, that was the the last that was the last step. Well, and in fact, I should have said we didn't do it. We have three hundred and thirty four people on the faculty, so we didn't do it in a big meeting. What we did is we broke the faculty into interdisciplinary groups of about twenty to twenty five, and the restructuring committee. Um, you know, we then we did the, tra but we all did it the same way. We used the same workshop for the training. You know, so um, so everybody got the same training. Everybody got the same message, and and it was um, colleague to colleague. Now, um, and and then the last step in it is to provide them with the same steps that they would then model for their students. So that last step in the presentation is, and now you're going to teach this approach to your students. So we at, step one is the faculty then had to choose a reading that would make sense in their class. We wanted it to be really authentic. So if you're a history teacher teaching about the Revolutionary War, you pick a reading on the Revolutionary War. If you're a science teacher teaching about you know, why things are extinct, you pick a reading about that. If you're, you know, whatever, the, you, know, you pick a reading that fits with what you're doing. And, but then you take the kids through the very same process that we modeled step by step by step. And the, and the end line also was we used a common rubric. So when they assessed the student's writing, every teacher in the school, even though they were using a different reading, even though they were using a different question, they were using the same writing process and the same assessment tool. Now I have to tell you, that was revolutionary for Brockton High. We had never, ever done something across the school. And that's why I urge all principals to try to do something. It doesn't have to be our writing process. It, you know, like I, I use an example, another school I was working with, they wanted to do persuasive, uh, well, argument writing because it's in the common core standards and they were struggling on that. that. It doesn't matter. It's the process of having everybody teach it to the kids the same way because what that did for the kids was to give them Deliberate, repeated practice on things. I know it is so important, and you know I didn't know this at the time because this was before all this brain research came out. But I was so, I was a sports part. I was an athlete when I was in school, and I was um, you know, and I I still fall. And I don't ever want to put things only in sports perspectives, but that's where I was coming from. I used to coach, and our principal at the time I had been appointed associate principal, and he was the football coach, and. Um, and what we understood is you don't learn something by A, being talked at, you have to do it, and B, by doing it once. You have to do it again and again and again. And, um, and so the practice, practice, practice was huge. And also the deliberate practice adds a time element where, you know, a kid is going to, if you don't use something, you're going to lose it. And I think about all those foreign language classes I had in school, I... Mm-hmm. So that deliberate practice helped the kid retain and be able to um, learn it and demonstrate it. And so, 
that's why we use the calendar of implementation of when teachers would do it. And it worked well. So tell me about the implementation calendar. How did you set it up and why did you set it up that way? What was your purpose there? Well, we didn't begin with English because we didn't want people to view it as an English one. We began, um, we, we, it doesn't actually matter how anyone sets it up, but you want to set it up so that the kids experience something again and again and again over time. Um, we started with social studies because that was the most positive um, department for us, and, and so we did it that way. Um, but you could start anyway. But I would urge you, if you're doing a literacy initiative, don't start with English, because then otherwise people see it as, oh, this is the English department telling us what we have to do. And so we implemented, and then the follow-up piece was, after people taught the writing, they collected the student work, and then we started to set up meetings where teachers could review and talk about and compare the student work. That led to some really powerful discussions about rigor across the school. That was really good. That was really good. Yeah. So you weren't having everybody write every single Correct. week, right? Right. But follow the journey of the kid at Brockton High. That kid was writing every week. Teachers weren't asked to do it every week. They were just asked to do it according to the calendar. So they weren't being overwhelmed. But the kids were getting it all the time. And the kids noticed it. They're like, I did this already. Well, you'll do it again. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. My today. pleasure. I have learned so much from you, and I know my listeners will also. Excellent. Good luck with your work. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. And please feel free to give us a rating on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes so that we can help spread the word about how much we're learning in this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. (laughs) 